Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 19. This chapter begins with what is undoubtedly one of the most controversial stories in the entire New Testament. It is connected to the story of Apollos, whom we encountered in Acts 18. He too was a disciple of John the Baptist, and he too needed some further instruction before he was able to come to a full and complete understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pick up the story in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that this story is one of the most controversial stories in the New Testament, and that is largely because of the way it has been used by certain Pentecostal groups. I. Howard Marshall puts it this way. He says, This story has often been used as the basis for doctrines about the reception of gifts of the Spirit subsequent to conversion. But it has no real connection with these. Rather, Paul was dealing with an unusual situation which required special treatment. In essence, some Pentecostals have argued that this story narrates the experience of a group of Christians who did not receive the Holy Spirit at the time of their conversion. They only received it later and as a result of certain specific activities. Some will go on from there to argue that this story provides further evidence that all true converts will manifest the gift of tongues at the moment they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, the problem with that argument is the assumption that these people were actual Christians in the first place. Now, true, Luke does refer to them as disciples, But if reading the Gospels proves anything to us, it is that not all disciples go on to become true believers. John 6, verse 66, for example, says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So, many people were interested in his teaching. They were, in that sense, disciples. The word just means learners. But at some point, they failed to press forward into true and saving belief. Now, in addition, most Bible readers will recognize that the word disciple does not always even refer to followers of Jesus Christ. There are disciples of the Pharisees. There are disciples of John the Baptist alongside disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. So the fact that Luke says that Paul met some disciples in Ephesus does not mean that these people were truly Christians. In fact, the whole point of the story appears to be that they were not Christians. Paul meets some people who, like Apollos in the previous chapter, appear to have an Old Testament messianic hope. They know that Messiah is coming. 
They know about repentance. They know the teaching of John the Baptist. But Paul begins to sense that they have not gone all the way into saving faith. They don't know, again, like Apollos, how the story of Jesus actually ends. Look at what he asked them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Listen to how they answer. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. David Peterson asks the obvious question, how could genuine Christians make such a response? Let me be so bold as to say that if you don't know that there is a Holy Spirit, then you are not a Christian in any meaningful sense of the word. So I think the Pentecostal argument falls obviously short. This is not a story about Christians who didn't receive the Holy Spirit. This is a story about Old Testament believers being brought to a full understanding of the gospel, embracing it, being baptized, and then, just as we would expect, receiving the Holy Spirit when they believed. This is how the majority of scholars outside the Pentecostal world understand the story. John Stott, for example, says here, he, Paul, took it for granted that baptized believers receive the Spirit, as Peter also taught, Acts 2, 38-39. Both his questions imply that to have believed and been baptized and not to have received the Spirit constitutes an extraordinary anomaly, closed quote. So I don't think that this passage is arguing for a second blessing. I think this passage is narrating how some Old Testament believers were carefully and gently brought up to speed, and then who upon conversion and baptism were included retroactively, we might say, in the experience of Pentecost. Now, as for whether speaking in tongues is being presented here as the normal experience of people who have received the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure how you would argue that from the text. As I mentioned, this story is paired with the story of Apollos in the previous chapter. In both cases, disciples of John the Baptist are brought up to speed as to the full content of the gospel of Jesus Christ, at which point they believe and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. But in only one of those cases is there any mention of anyone speaking in tongues. Furthermore, as you survey the book of Acts as a whole, you notice that there really is no consistent pattern. In Acts chapter 2, people do speak in tongues when they get saved and receive the Holy Spirit, as again they do in Acts 10 and then finally here in Acts 19. But in Acts 4, people get saved and don't speak in tongues, nor do they in Acts 5 or Acts 6 or Acts 8, 9, 13, 14, 17, or 18, despite that in each of those chapters we're told about the conversion of large numbers of people, none of whom are said to have spoken in tongues. I. Howard Marshall summarizes usefully here. He says, it is clear from the other stories of conversion in Acts that such manifestations took place spasmatically and were not the general rule. In the present case, some unusual gift was perhaps needed to convince this group of semi-Christians that they were now fully members of Christ's church, closed quote. I find it very difficult to disagree with that assessment. We return to the story in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. 
This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here again, we observe Paul's normal pattern. He preached in the synagogue until he got kicked out. Then he found some new space to meet in with all those who had believed in the gospel. Again, this would have been incredibly disruptive. Synagogues would have been split. Families, no doubt, were divided and whole regions set ablaze by this new preaching. Notice also that once again, Paul parked himself in a regional center. Ephesus was the administrative capital of the Roman province of Asia and was one of the principal cities of the empire. Paul establishes a hub church there and from that church saturates the entire region with the sound of the gospel. Paul continued in Ephesus for nearly two and a half years. We pick up the story in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Luke provides here a vivid illustration of the sort of power evangelism that was being exercised by the Apostle Paul. These signs and miracles were not themselves the point. Luke says in verse 20 that all of this was towards the end, that the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. The miracles and the power encounters seemed to be designed to overcome the stronghold of magic and occult practices in the city of Ephesus. The people realized that the name of Jesus contained all the power and authority that they needed, and so they abandoned their magic arts and their occult talismans. As is always the case, where there is legitimate power from God, there will be people trying to imitate it and people trying to appropriate it. Luke tells us about that by sharing with us the amusing story of the seven sons of Sceva. They try and use the names of Jesus and Paul is a sort of magic spell, but of course it doesn't work that way. And they get themselves thoroughly beat up and abused by this demonic power. The demon turns on them and says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? D.A. Carson says memorably here, Christians engaging the enemy will be known not only in the courts of heaven, but also in the courts of hell. That's a good reminder for us all. Verse 21 says, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. 
And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Luke tells us here that Paul received some sort of guidance from the Holy Spirit, indicating that the church in Ephesus was now well-established and that it was time for him to hit the road. His intention was to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, obviously so as to strengthen churches there as uh, he had previously done after his first missionary journey. When we compare with 2 Corinthians 9 here, it would seem that he was also intent on gathering up the offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Luke also tells us that he sent two of his helpers ahead of him, Timothy and Erastus. Now, Timothy we're fairly familiar with, but Erastus is new to us. It was a fairly common name, and he's only mentioned one more time in the New Testament, and again, without any narrative, so there really isn't much we can say about him. Obviously, he was one of the several young men who are mentioned as having been mentored by the Apostle Paul. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disre uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further... It shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
I think the main reason Luke shares this story is just to show us the sort of impact that the gospel was having in pagan Roman society. The gates of hell were being stormed and the devil was taking notice. The gospel was literally changing the local landscape. It was affecting the local economy, we're told here. As people converted, they were turning away from magic and the occult, and they were turning away from pagan worship. And of course, that got noticed. The temple of Artemis or Diana, again, those are two names for the same goddess, was a major source of income for the city of Ephesus. It was a huge temple. It was one of the seven wonders, actually, of the ancient world. It could hold 25,000 worshipers at a time. People would go on pilgrimage and visit the temple and the sites around. And of course, those visits would result in massive influxes of currency into the local economy. But as the gospel began to penetrate Asia Minor, it affected that flow of tourists. That in and of itself is an incredible testimony to the spread and to the impact of the gospel. As accused in Acts 17.6, these men were literally turning the world upside down. Christianity does not sit easy inside a pagan culture. It is confrontational and subversive by definition. It is like yeast that works its way through the entire batch of dough. So it was in the days of Paul. So it was in the city of Ephesus. Lord, make it so again in our day. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.